0: Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we do praise you this day. We honor you and we bless your holy name. Lord, we are reminded of your great sovereignty and your mighty power. Lord, that you are the creator of everything that exists. Lord, as we consider that you are in heaven, And that you indeed rule over everything. And that you are a God of love and justice. God, that you are a God of grace and mercy. Oh Lord, we rejoice to know that you have the whole world in your hands. That Lord, things are not surprising you, but that you are bringing your world to an expected end. We're grateful, Lord, at the thought of this. And we pray, Lord, for continued mercy, that you would strengthen our faith and help us to trust you each new day, not to lean on our own understanding, but acknowledge you in everything that we do. And Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place today and freely proclaim your word. I pray that you would bring light to our eyes and strength to our faith And, Lord, that we would find our hope firmly fixed upon you and your promises that you've made to us in your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are to us, all that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for the glorious and blessed cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you were willing to send your Son into this world to die for our sins, and lord to make us righteous in your sight we do indeed count the blood of jesus precious in his name we pray amen okay so then just briefly want to mention the fact that i was had made reference to the rope that was on the ankle of the high priest and uh, Lori was out at my house on Tuesday night, and she was picking in the garden. And she says, "Hey, where is that reference in the Bible?" <laughs> and because uh, I guess she said folks at the home fellowship were talking about it and looking it up and couldn't find it. And I thought, I thought, well, that's in—I uh, think it's Exodus 25. And so I said, "But I'll find it, and I'll let you know." So a little later that night, I went and started looking for it and realized it's not there. And so then I went, launched into this extensive study, and sure enough, guess what? It's nothing but a legend. And uh, I know who to blame for that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't blame him for mentioning it last week in class. That, that one's on me. So... Um, But anyway, I wanted to mention to you that that is in fact a legend and not reality. And I sent out the scripture that was in Exodus 28 verses 31 through 39 where it discusses the garments of the high priest and so on. And and, uh, there's some interesting insight there. There's there's several other passages that talk about his um, ministry, the things he wore and the things he did on the Day of Atonement, specifically Leviticus chapter 16. Is a is a place that that talks about that at length, but the idea is that if if he um, if he performs his ministry improperly in that place, that he will die. That's repeated again and again in scripture, and so if you will, uh, various Bible teachers, including me, <laughs> have uh, taken that and run with this. Idea that they were tying a rope around his leg so that if he died they could pull him out without having to enter into the holy place most holy place and um, But that that is in fact a legend one of the things that grabbed me while I was looking around on the internet at that was that If you type into a search engine this I just typed in high priest rope and up came this these articles What was interesting is on that same search page, you could find articles that would uh, purport this myth that would tell you that, in fact, he had this rope. And they go on and on about all this fancy stuff. And, And then on the same page, you could find... Uh, people that were talking about it as as that it was just a legend and a fabrication, and and then you could find some people that say, well, it was in the Jewish uh, Mishnah, and and things like that, and then you then then uh, you'd find others that said, no, this isn't in any official Jewish writings. It's just a legend. It's just a myth. And so, uh, I mentioned that in my email to the class because. I want you to realize that when you're out searching on the Internet, there's all kinds of wacky, crazy ideas that that get put forth. And so don't just click on the first uh, selection there and and take it for gospel truth. You with me? Um, But, uh, you know, that we are to uh, if we're going to understand a matter, then we ought to do diligence in our study in that. And of course, the first place we ought to be looking and be very well acquainted with is the Holy Scripture. Amen? Amen? I mean, that's what the controversy is all about in the first place, right? What? Hath God really said? Amen? And when the devil wages war against God and the church, this is what he does. He says, Hath God really said? You with me? That's the nature of his warfare. So, he's a liar. And uh I apologize for my poor scholarship and misrepresenting the truth. Accepted? Still love me? <laughs> okay. All right. So, with that <clears throat> I'm sorry. Okay. Praise the Lord. So, um with that, we're going to uh, be um Starting off today on page 7, but I, I want to uh, just... Have you ever heard that idiom, beat a dead dog with a stick? No. <laughs> I want to beat a dead dog with a stick this morning. And, and this, is, this is what I want to refer to. I kind of summed this up in a little statement for you. Our understanding must always be placed on the backdrop of God's character, nature, and eternal purposes. And so what I'm trying to say is that when we start studying the Bible and we start studying biblical doctrine and Christianity and, and uh, biblical truth, okay, <clears throat> it's extremely important that we have whatever doctrinal issue or matter that we're looking at set on the backdrop of the person and the work of God, okay? So who is God? So, so that whatever understanding we derive from a specific doctrine or study of certain passages of Scripture, it always is consistent with the very being of God himself, okay? That's extremely important. I can't stress that enough, and I keep trying to find ways to articulate it in a new way. But effectively, what we're saying is, is that when we when we talk about the understanding of truth, we ha- we have to understand the Bible is supernatural, and that the revelation that comes out of the Bible is supernatural revelation, and that God Himself is a supernatural God, and we are natural beings. Are you with me? He's the Creator; we are creatures, and so when we seek to understand the supernatural understanding of the scripture, it must come from the being of God. And God the Holy Spirit himself has that ministry of teaching us, those of us who are in Christ, and revealing to us his truth. Okay? So in in order for us to gain a right understanding, and frequently um, the most uh, 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 regular thing that accompanies heresy is a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God, okay? And, and uh, that's called a theological heresy, okay? Because it's a heresy that somehow misdivines or misrepresents the nature of God himself, okay? So what I'm saying is that stuff that you learn in the theology section of the book that talks about who God is and what he's like. For instance, let me give you an example, a modern heresy Probably the most pervasive and destructive heresy alive in the church today. Open theism. Okay? If you're familiar with the ideas of open theism, it's a violation of God's nature. What facet of God's nature is being violated in open theism? Somebody tell me. His sovereignty. His sovereignty? His omniscience. Omniscience. His omniscience. Okay? Yeah. And, And so what happens is it's his omniscience that's being violated. But what happens is when... God's omniscience is misunderstood, it's misapplied, and then what happens? Then then we misrepresent all these different aspects of his kingdom and his purposes and his work, right? And specifically, even his sovereignty and how it's played out. And so, for instance, the most important and fundamental work of God in creation that is misrepresented in open theism is his His providence, how God interacts with the world he's created to bring to pass his purposes. That that thing is just devastated by this misrepresentation of the knowledge of God, his omniscience, okay? So that's why I'm saying what we've done is when we've sacrificed this one aspect of God's character that he can't know all things because things haven't happened and, and therefore they're not there to know that God can't know them. And so... What flows out of that is just a river of heresies, okay? And um, it's it's creating a huge destruction in the church and with people. And thank God that the Holy Spirit is there with the elect, <laughs> right, to teach them and guide them in, into all truth. Amen. Okay, so um, it's important that we understand those things. So that's why when you when you see me in the first. Uh, sections of these lessons that we go through that start in September and end in May, I'm typically focused on the person and the being of God first and primarily because that's the framework and infrastructure for understanding these other doctrines that are really important but can only be understood with the backdrop of the character and nature of God. That's why when I come to you, I talk to you. Like for instance, I, I was talking with you about the fact that the Bible is a historical redemptive narrative from beginning to end. So that when you look at the Bible, what you see is is the history of redemption. God has recorded in the in the scriptures His His redeeming plan, His plan. We talk about God has a plan, but a lot of times we don't think what that really means, uh, specifically in regard to the fact that God is omniscient. So if God has a plan today, like right here, here I am somewhere in, on this uh, graph of time, somewhere here in the church age, right? And I'm li- alive today and I'm living right here and people will say, well, I have a part in God's plan. Or God has a plan for your life. Well, let me ask you a question. If God is omniscient, when did he make that plan? In eternity, right? So God's plan has always existed. There never was a time when God's plan did not exist. And if you're in that plan, you were included in that plan from before the foundation of the earth, from before the earth was ever created. A trillion years ago, God was rejoicing over you and the plan he had for you. You with me? You see the ramifications behind God's knowledge? You see that? So that's why I was pointing you uh, to, to the fact that when you look at the Scripture, what you find is this narrative that is laying out for us everything that God has done in the creation. Not only that, we get to read to the end of the book. Amen? And so as far as time and space is concerned, God's laid out the whole history of redemption for us. He even tells us, gives us a a complete, absolutely comprehensive and complete description of how he will consummate the ages. Amen? That's what we call the study of eschatology or end times or last days or last things, right? And so all these things are addressed in the scripture. So all the way back from the very creation account from when our existence began as creatures right, all the way to the consummation of the ages and everything God has done throughout the ages, right, it's all in the scripture. And, and so we were talking about the fact that what the center focus of that whole thing is, is what? Jesus and the cross, right, because Jesus is that unique uh, person, member of the Godhead, Who came and entered into time and space and became one of us and dwelt among us to show us God. And to not only do that, but to carry out his work of redemption, right? In him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins, right? Ephesians 1, 7. And so, if you will, this history of creation is all about what happens on the cross. That's the center focus of everything that's happened in the universe, so let me also suggest to you, that's the center focus of the plan of God in eternity. So now think about this. You have the triune God in the, in the eternity rejoicing together in his own being forever and ever con- concerning our existence, okay? This plan for Christ to come and redeem the world is central in the, in the mind and in the thought of God, <laughs> And the father has got this whole thing planned out. And the son is agreeing and consenting to come and to enter time and space. And to become a man forever. To take on a human nature. And to be brutalized and murdered at the hands of godless men. And then raised from the dead. And having his church uh, then uh, begun by his own work and by the work of his own hands. And then now the ministry of the Holy Spirit taking effect to, to call out from every tribe and language and nation a people for himself. And, and how that whole redemptive history was in the mind of God and all the members of the Trinity consenting to this thing in eternity past. Are you with me? And that's why I brought up to you the covenant of redemption. Because this is a thing that's going on in the mind of God. And what I'm telling you is something that flows necessarily out of his being. Because he's a triune being and there are three members in the Godhead. And all of those members of the Godhead are equally divine and equally omniscient, knowing the whole plan of redemption from all eternity. They have all consented and agreed to carry this thing out. Why, Why do I tell you about these things? Because this is the ground of our assurance as Christians. (laughs) That little old me right here, somewhere in the course of history, his eye is on me. How do I know that? I'm in Christ. I'm a recipient of the blessing of Abraham, that he promised to Abraham, that he carried out in Christ, that now the Holy Spirit has brought to pass in power in my life in regeneration. Amen? Amen. You with me? And, and so what, why should we be talking about all of these deep theological matters? And here's why. Because the understanding of what Jesus has done as a Savior on the cross, okay, and the understanding of what the atonement does and how it works in our life and how it affects salvation, and the understanding of what the content of the gospel message is, and, and how it works in the world to call God's people out and to glorify God, all of that stuff is on the backdrop of this infrastructure of the character and nature of God. Are you with me? And so I, what I'm trying to do is get you to think about these doctrines that we're going to dive into and try to understand from the perspective of God in heaven. You see, God's not up in heaven wondering if things are going to work out right. You know, he's not up in heaven, uh, you know, trembling because his enemies have, have uh, risen up against him. Are you with me? But, but instead, it's all going according to plan. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a tremendous ground of assurance. So that even though the waves are tossing on the sea, Right, I can be still and know that He is God. Amen? And even in the darkest hour of my life, and in the darkest hour of my suffering, I have the hope of heaven. Right? I, I have the hope of immortality and life beyond the grave, forever and ever in bliss with God rejoicing in who He is and all that He has for me and created all the capacities of human nature that He's given me to enjoy His person throughout all all eternity will be realized at death's door. Which that's all it is for us Christians. It's a door. It's a door into heavenly bliss. Amen? And this is what Jesus did. He robbed the devil of the fear of death that he instills in humankind. We're no longer afraid. Right? That's what Jesus said. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Amen? And so we have this comfort and we have this assurance that God is in control. Amen? You with me? Okay. Okay, so then, with that, we're, we're looking at how Christ is presented in the Old Testament narrative. And um, if you look at the bottom of page 5, I just want to remind you about this thing. That as we see Jesus portrayed in the promises of the Old Testament, you know, consider what's happening here. Jesus is going to come on the scene here. In 33 A.D. or 30 A.D. or, of course, his life was 33 years long. But he's going to come on the scene here. And the entire Old Testament narrative was, was written hundreds, even thousands of years before he ever existed. Okay? Yet what we find is in, in this revelation from God, is a description about who he is, what he would do, what his life is like, and what we have is these prophecies in the Old Testament that are all pointing forward to Christ, which is what that chart on the bottom of page uh, 2 shows you. It shows you these these narratives in the Old Testament, uh, messianic types and prophecies in the Old Testament, point to Christ's saving work on the cross. Why? Because the Old Testament is a historically... Uh, uh, is a redemptive historical narrative it's pointing to god's work of redemption in christ and so whatever the ritual whatever the sacrifice whatever the the type that was represented in judaism in the old testament all of those things have their fulfillment in christ that's what it says in colossians chapter 2 verse 17 that that christ those things were just a shadow of the good things that are here in christ amen and, and so that Christ is a fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types, all those Old Testament shadows, and all those Old Testament prophecies, which we're looking at. And those things are describing to us the very nature of what Christ did on the cross and, and the very nature of God's work in history to redeem mankind. Okay? I mean, just think about it. Israel is a special nation, would you agree? What makes them so special? God chose him. God chose him for what? His purpose. His purpose. What was his purpose? His to, to redeem. How does he redeem? Through the Messiah. Through whom comes the Messiah? Christ. Through whom comes the oracles of God. And the priesthood. And all of those things that that came to pass throughout the course of history to bring us to this place. Right? Right? And and that's that's the point. The point is is that God is working his purpose in history. Amen. And and when we talk about the fact that Israel's been chosen of God, they they have in Romans chapter 9 verses 1, I think it's 1 through 3 or 4, there's a description there of the benefits that Israel has in being chosen of God, and all the things that they are partakers of because of that. Okay? Something to clearly understand, and and of course they have a part again in this consummation, don't they? Mm-hmm. I keep wanting to talk about that because I'm a premillennialist, and I believe there will be a thousand year millennium on the earth, and I do believe Jesus will reign on His throne in Jerusalem on a physical throne, in a physical kingdom on this earth, because the Bible cr- teaches that clearly. Okay, but uh, at that time Israel again has a part in that whole purpose and plan. You can read it in the Bible. And maybe one day we'll discuss it in detail. But the point is is just that as we look at these Old Testament messianic prophecies that are pointing to, uh, to Christ, I want you to see these themes that are present. Because when Jesus dies on that cross, some very important things are happening. And so I pointed out to you that there are these three things that I wanted to point out, although there are more. Um, that Those are atonement for sin or sacrifice. So typically when you're looking at Messianic prophecies, you're going to see this theme, the theme of atonement, the theme of sacrifice, the, the theme that, that uh, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You know, the Old Testament is a bloody book, isn't it? A lot of blood spilled in the Old Testament. What does the spilled blood say to us? you with me? It says volumes, right? But it's pointing to what? The ultimate spilling of blood. Are you with me? And so this is a theme in Messianic <laughs> prophecy. What else? The, the theme of substitution. The theme of, of of that sacrifice dying in the place of the person who has sinned so that the person who has sinned doesn't have to die, right? That's the theme of substitution. And then again, the idea of faith not works. And if you will, this is the idea that God is the one who does the work of redemption. It's not something we do with the work of our hands. On the contrary, we're incapable of that work, right? And that's why in the narrative of Abraham, the mountain is named this. In the mouth of the Lord it shall be provided. Right? And Abraham doesn't wind up having to sacrifice his son. Instead, what? God provides a lamb on the mountain. Right? 2,000 years before Christ died here on this cross, and what we call Calvary, which is on Golgotha, which is in Jerusalem which is on top of Mount Moriah. 2,000 years earlier is the narrative in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, where Abraham, the father, is is tested by God to offer up his son as a sacrifice at this place. You with me? And so you see these types and these shadows and these themes that are in these Old Testament revelations, and there's a lot for us to glean there. But I want you to consider something further. When we're done talking about the person of Christ, okay, we're going to talk about the work of Christ. We're going to talk about the atonement. We're going to talk about what happened when Christ died on the cross. What did that affect? How does that apply to us? What does it all mean? What, has, what revelation has the scripture given us about that work and what it does? Okay, okay. And you need to understand that the Old Testament is teaching us volumes about that. It's teaching us volumes about that. And it's, it's teaching us all kinds of other things about God. We're, we're, we're learning. We're having, we're having supernatural divine realities revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the narrative of Scripture. Amen? So when you go back and you read the story of Abraham, you need to consider these words as a treasure from God. These are the very words of God from out of heaven to teach us, to show us, to feed our souls with spiritual truth. You with me? We don't just read the Bible out of a duty. We go there to worship God and to commune with God in prayer, in the holy word. Amen? Are you with me? Okay. So, when we're there, consider these themes, because this is exactly what happens here. What happens here on the cross is atonement, and it happens through sacrifice, and that sacrifice is a substitution. It's in the place of me, okay? And, and furthermore, this is something that God has provided. It's, this is not the work of men. That is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, dying on that cross. And the only part that men have in it is that through their godless, wicked murder, they killed Him. You with me? Which would include each one of us. Because He's hanging there for a reason and a purpose. Amen? Amen. Namely, your sins and mine. Amen? Amen. So we can't just blame... The, the high priest, and we can't just blame Pontius Pilate, and we can't just blame the Jews, and we can't just blame the Roman Gentiles at that time, can we? Because we're guilty, aren't we? God help us. Okay. But as we see these themes in the Old Testament, consider how those things are going to impact our understanding of what's happening on the cross. All right? So... Today we're going to start looking here at Psalm 22, but as we go through this, I want you to consider what these things say to us, not only about how the Old Testament is revealing Christ in this historical narrative, but the things that it teaches us about the nature of Christ's atoning work, (coughs) and the things that it teaches us about who Christ is and what happened on the cross. So turn with me to Psalm 22 and let me give you an example in the very first verse. Think about what it says there. And this has to be one of the most profound verses in all of the whole Bible. Have you ever considered this verse? Psalm 22 and verse 1. This is what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning." Now, what's significant about that verse in, in the Old Testament there? On the cross. Those are words that came out of the mouth of Christ on the cross. And in so doing, Jesus was saying, I was the fulfillment or I am the fulfillment of these cries that were given 1,500 years earlier or 1,000 years earlier. That's profound. How is it that this king, some thousand years earlier, can cry out in his sufferings, and his very words become a narrative description of what's happening to the Messiah on the cross a thousand years later? How does that happen? These are supernatural words (laughs) in a supernatural book. And that's a supernatural God dying on that cross. Amen? Amen? Not only that, that cross is the whole reason why the universe exists. Amen? It's there to reveal the glory of the immortal God. Think about that. Is there some other event in all of the history of creation that has more significance than that event? It's not. And while the Savior is there, he opens his mouth and he quotes this psalm from King David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now think about this. How is it that God the Father has forsaken God the Son who is on the cross? Uh, What mysteries does that unfold for you? Is that, I mean, to me, the very thought of that is something that sends my mind reeling into eternity somewhere, and I haven't landed yet. Amen? Amen. I mean, what is really happening there? Can, can God, can the one God who is revealed in three persons somehow be separated? You understand what I'm saying? It's a mystery what's happening on this cross. I'm not going to explain it to you this morning because I don't have the capacity, nor are there words in English to describe this. But it can be amply described in the cries of Jesus. My God, why have you forsaken me? Amen? And here's this, this man who is God on this cross crying out in this, in this separation from the Father. Right? I've got to be careful with the words I use. I'm liable to start a new heresy. <laughs> <clears throat> you with me? But think about how these words in this Old Testament narrative are describing to us something that's happening in the very nature of God on that cross. Think about it in these terms. Can God, who is life, you understand this is God hanging on the cross? Jesus is God the Son. He's not just the Son of God. Are you with me? He is the Son of God, and what that means is He's God the Son. You you with me? So tell me, how can God, who has life in himself, who is life himself and the sustenance of life, die. How can that happen? Have you thought about that? These these are amazing things. We start to focus on the cross that, that really come home to cause us to really wonder in amazement and awe about what God has done there. Right? Okay, so... These aren't just some words on a page in a book. These are very profound things. He goes on, he says, in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Right? And so we see in this narrative of Psalm 22 this foreshadowing of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. And... Um, it really is astonishing, some of the things that are brought up in this, in this passage. Um, here we find that Christ is, has been forsaken by God, that he was verbally abused by men, verses 6 and 7. There it says he was despised by the people, and all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and wag their heads, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Right? you familiar with the crucifixion accounts? Are mm-hmm. you familiar with the part where they're all coming by? You know, crucifixion was a public thing. They did it out in public and they did that on purpose. For what purpose? To shame the individual that was being crucified. And this is exactly what would happen. People in the public place would come and they would mock and they would sneer and they would shame. Because typically these were the, these were the criminals of that day. These were, these were public enemies who were being crucified by the government. Okay? And so, here in the words of David, these cries of Jesus are recorded some thousand years before he even lived. And it says here that he was despised by the people, that they sneer at him, and that they wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver them. Which... His trust in God was ridiculed. And you can read the New Testament references to these very things happening to Christ. They're provided there in the table. Do you see that? So if we went, for instance, to Matthew 27, 39-44, we would see how the people were walking by. This was recorded. They were walking by and they were wagging their heads and they were saying, you know, hey, if you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. You know, Or or let God deliver him. He says he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Right? Okay. Well, it goes on. And, and there it talks about the fact that he was physically weakened. And in verses 14 and 15, it says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Okay? And if you're familiar with Jesus as he's... Life is ebbing away on the cross. He's becoming very weak. He's going to become weak to the point of death, isn't he? And there he's also thirsty. And he, he, uh, he requests something to drink. And here in the Old Testament it's saying that his tongue cleaves to his jaws. Right? Well, all these things, you know, hey, they kind of seem like a shadow of what was happening with Jesus. Right? Until you get to verse 16. Verse 16. And verse 16 says that they pierced his hands and his feet, and it says here, "For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet." Well, you know we read that, and we've read the gospel account, and we know that they pierced Jesus' hands and his feet when they nailed him to the cross, right? And so we kind of look at that and we say, well, yeah, that's what happened. They they nailed his hands and feet to the cross. But do you understand? This was written a thousand years before Jesus even lived. And I want to ask you a question. Did they pierce David's hands and his feet? What's going on in this narrative of Scripture? Something very supernatural. Are you with me? It's profound. It's extremely profound. He says, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All right? That's another one of those things. And and here, this is part of the character of Scripture. It's very prophetic, isn't it? it? It has in it this supernatural revelation. It has in it this light that sees... Beyond, it transcends time and space, does it not? How is it that David is saying, they pierce my hands and my feet and they cast lots for my clothing? You with me? I mean, did David have his garments divided by his enemies? Were they casting lots for his clothing? It's a good question, something to think about, something to go study, right? But the point is, we know for sure that happened to Christ, It's right in the New Testament narrative describing what happened on the cross. Right? And when you begin to put this whole psalm together and see the description of the crucifixion that's taken place, it's amazing. It's amazing. So think about how, like, in one place in in the Old Testament narrative, you may have this picture of a father having to sacrifice his son for sin. Right? And the Lord providing a ram. And that shows certain characteristics of the cross. But then we get on the other side, and we're looking at the Lord's Passover. And, and, and here they are to, to sacrifice this lamb, and they, the whole family has to eat the lamb together with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, right? And then they take the blood of the lamb, and they, they put it over the doorposts of their household, and the death angel passes them by. And so we look at that facet of the cross in the Old Testament, we see a whole different picture, right? We see the Lord's passing over his people and them being covered again with this atonement of the lamb that was provided and the blood being spilled and the blood being representative of God's choosing on that home, that family who is in the chosen line of Israel. Right to be kept through the wrath of God and passed over so that they can live and go free the next day. Remember, they ate the meal with their bags packed and their clothes on like they're ready to travel. you with me? And so with these different aspects of Messianic prophecy, we see different facets of the cross. Now look what we're looking at. Here we are in Psalm 22, and we're getting a picture of the very suffering of the Savior on the cross. Isn't that amazing? All the pictures that God gives us of what he intends to do in this historical narrative. You with me? A a few other things that are there in the psalm. Um, He was stared at by the people. They cast lots for his clothing. clothing, But then in the end, God hears his prayers. And uh, one of the things about Psalm 22 is it's a psalm of... You know, distress and crying out to God. But in the end is the deliverance of God. Right? Which, by the way, Jesus isn't still on that cross and neither is his dead body in the grave. Amen? But he's even now at the right hand of God, exalted. Right? Above every name that can be named. The Son of God. The ruler of the universe. Amen? And I would ask you this question, did God hear his prayer? And in your deepest, darkest hour, will God hear your prayer? And will the dust of death hold you down? Or will, like the scripture says, uh, that the Spirit of God raised him from the dead, he will raise us from the dead also, Romans chapter 8. Amen? Praise God. Well, so, it is apparent that this psalm is a messianic prophecy, bright shining as the sun. One can hardly imagine how someone could see the fulfillment of these ancient cries of the psalmist in the suffering of Christ and not be awed and amazed. I wonder how somebody could read this Old Testament psalm and knowing the narrative of the New Testament gospel and not believe. (laughs) I mean, that is just amazing. The blindness of men. Are you with me? And I was once there. I was once blind, but now I see. Amen. God opened up the scripture. He gave light to my eyes. Now I see. Right? And and just think of the glories that we see when we read this Old Testament psalm. Is this a treasure to you? Right? Oh, the psalmist says, how I love thy law. This is the delight of the man of God in Psalm 1 who's blessed beyond measure. Amen. Because He delights in the Word. We look and we see Christ in this thing. And Christ is to us our all in all. Amen? It's a glorious picture for us. It's it's awesome. This is awesome. Are you with me? I mean, I understand. I like vanilla ice cream. But vanilla ice cream isn't awesome. It's, It's good. It's creamy. It's sweet. I like it. Right? It's just... I'm I'm commenting about the devaluing of words that we have in our in our culture. You know? Let me tell you, this is awesome. Amen. What God is doing in the history of the creation, that's awesome. That's beyond our imagination. You know? I often use this analogy, we're like little kids playing in the mud puddle in the parking lot at the beach. When when there's a huge ocean you know, with this glorious white sand. And we could go out in that great deep, right, and experience the wonders of, of God. And we're satisfied playing in a little bit of dirty water in the mud puddle. You with me? Did you ever play in a mud puddle at the parking lot at the beach when you were a kid? <laughs> uh, <laughs> One other thing to consider is that this is the incarnate Son of God hanging on this cross. That's God on that cross. Now that is an amazing thought. Talk about humiliation. You know, to make oneself low. When you think about God created the world with a spoken word. And then he comes into that world to be treated like this. When he shows up, in fact, they can't even give him a bed and a pillow. Go out there and sleep with the animals. You with me? <clears throat> Furthermore, I think it was George Whitfield who described this person on this cross a bleeding God. A bleeding God. That's amazing. That's shocking. And I asked the question then, what wondrous love is this, O my soul? Along with the great hymn writer. What wondrous love is this, that God would bleed and die for me? Amazing? Amazing. Well, I also ask the question, how can words describe this profound nature of these events? Right? I think we'll go on for years and years, ages and ages, world without end, trying to describe and lay hold of the glories that are here. Amen? Okay, so then let us see here how both Old and New Testaments come together as a unified whole to point us to Christ. You with me? You have this Old Testament narrative here in the psalm. But remember, you have all these New Testament fulfillments of those things coming to pass. They're described in the very narrative of what happened to Christ on the cross. And then looking again on page 8 there, in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have a messianic prophecy which is unmatched for its clarity and detail about the suffering of Christ the Messiah. As the Ethiopian eunuch was riding along and speaking to Philip, reading from Isaiah, Philip explained to him that he was reading about Jesus the Christ. You're familiar with the story? The Ethiopian eunuch is riding along in his chariot, and, and uh, uh, God tells Philip, Go up and join yourself to the chariot, right? And so um, Philip comes jogging along and, and uh, here's this, you know, this Ethiopian eunuch, obviously a man of power, right, um, on the queen's court or something like that. And he's headed back and, and uh, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 and he is just puzzled. He's thinking, who in the world is this thing talking about? Isn't that amazing how that eunuch looks with eyes that see and others read it in darkness with a veil, as it were. But so in Acts 8.32, this account is described for us in the Bible. And there it says, Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Okay? And so here you have this um, New Testament um, uh, apostle. Philip, right? And he uh, takes off from Isaiah 53, preaching Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch. So what does that tell us about the character of Isaiah 53 in what it is communicating to us? Are you with me? And you might be familiar that in the early, early church, think about this, okay? In the early, early church, they didn't have a New Testament canon, they didn't walk around with a Bible like this with a, a reference column and a study notes, right, to understand it. As a matter of fact, in the early, early church, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament, right? And then even in much of the first century, What they did have, if they did have any kind of a New Testament book whatsoever, might just be a letter or a piece of a letter or something like that. They didn't have a New Testament like we have today. So what was happening, and specifically in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, Paul would go into the synagogues where they had a knowledge about who God was, right? And they had a knowledge about the fact that there was a promised Messiah who would come. And what he would do is he'd go into the synagogues and he'd preach Jesus from the Old Testament. And he'd open up the Old Testament and he'd say, "Look, all these things that the holy word of God was saying were all pointing to this Jesus who came and fulfilled those things." And that's how the early church was being saved. They they weren't quoting uh, Romans 10. <laughs> they didn't have the Romans road. Are you with me? All they had was the Old Testament. But uh, Paul was uh, preaching and teaching these things from the Old Testament. This is one of the very profound passages in the Old Testament that opens up Christ to us. And not only that, but in those days, you understand, in the first century, think about this. The the account of what happened to Jesus on the cross there in Palestine in the first century Roman world was common knowledge. You know, it was like something we saw on the news. It was like nine one. Everybody knew what it was. Everybody knew what happened. Everybody knew how it went down. You right? It was the news. Right? And and of course it was it was a big stir too because this uh, these radical, zealous Christians were going out and preaching the gospel and people were getting saved. Right? And people's lives are being radically transformed. The whole Roman world was being evangelized in the, in the first century by these events that took place right then and there in their day and time. Are you with me? So when Paul came into the synagogue, he said, Let me tell you about that Jesus. Here he is on the page of your Old Testament right here. Right? And, of course, he wasn't just preaching to the Jews or those Gentiles who, uh, who were hearers. Of the word of God in Judaism, but he was also preaching to the Gentiles. The same Jesus, right? Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching to the the pagans in 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 Athens, and they don't. They're not in the synagogue. They don't know a thing about God. They're worshiping idols, right? But the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. And it carries with it the power to regenerate mankind. But if you will. Open up to Isaiah 53. And there we see this description of who is referred to in Isaiah as the servant of God. The Messiah is portrayed in the latter chapters of Isaiah as the servant of God. Now, not only that, but so is Israel. And if you will there's this play on words in Isaiah's chapters 40 and following where the servant sometimes represents Israel as a whole and other times it represents Christ uh the the person okay and uh specifically it gets really focused on Christ right at the end of chapter 52 And you may not have been familiar with these last few verses at the end of chapter 52. They're very enlightening. There it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Okay, so the Messianic prophecies begin earlier there and this isn't just the only place there are several in the latter chapters of Isaiah but they begin to come into focus there with that verse 14 where it says his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men thus he will sprinkle many nations Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what he had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. And so Isaiah asked the question, who has believed our message? Right? And then we look at the gospel in the New Testament and we find out that it's foolishness. That the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to them that believe it is what? The power of God. Amen? And, and so Isaiah asked this question. Who, who believed this message? Who, who's going to believe this message about some Jewish carpenter dying on a cross because the Romans sought to crucify him because he was some kind of a raving lunatic out preaching and doing wild, amazing things? Who's going to believe that message? Isn't it amazing, the whole story? It's just, it's unbelievable. Amen? If we didn't have the Spirit, we wouldn't believe. <clears throat> but he goes on there, and he describes these things that happened to Jesus. And again, if you look at the table there on page 8, it, it shows you these things. And and the the verse in Isaiah and the New Testament references are all listed there. But think about these things that show up in this uh, prophecy in Isaiah. And I want to say, I think this is the clearest messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and and that bit that's in 52. There it says that he was despised and rejected by men. That he has borne our infirmities. That he was considered smitten by God. Uh, I mean, who put Christ to death ultimately on the cross? God. When did God do that? In the covenant of redemption before the, the foundation of the earth. That's when God did that. Amen? It's a glorious reality. I want you to know that is under attack. In the modern church, the idea that God would sacrifice his son is being hailed as divine child abuse yeah I mean you look you're shocked by that. I want you to know that there are more people who embrace that message in American Christianity than there are who don't. You know because we, we're, we're in this little evangelical, conservative Christian world, you know and we're, we, and that, that's the great place to be, by the way. <laughs> okay? But the point is is that we don't understand that the populace of people who call themselves Christians are really in a liberal. Uh, Christianity, and it is a wicked place, let me tell you, and it's spurning all kinds of wicked, vile heresies, okay, but this whole, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement, or what we would call penal substitutionary atonement, which is talking about the fact that Christ was punished with penalty, and that he died as a substitution to cover over sin at the plan of God. That is the doctrine that is under attack like no other doctrine. And let me tell you what is lending credence to that whole thing is the idea of open theism. Okay? And it's amazing how these things relate. But the point is is just that, uh, family, we know that this goes on, that Satan is seeking every way he can to attack the word of God and to attack the cross and to attack the value of what has happened here and the value of the person that is there. Okay? And we need to be wary of these things. But consider how these things are crystal clear in these themes in the Old Testament, right? It says there that he bore our iniquities. You with me? That's atonement. That's substitution, right? The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. You understand? That's an Old Testament quote describing the crucifixion of Christ. And and so here are all these wonderful Glorious things that appear in the text of Isaiah... 700 years before Christ was even born. Okay? That he, <clears throat> we are healed by His stripes. Right? That He was wounded for our transgressions. And in, in verse 5, that He was flogged. And in verse 7, that He was silent before His accusers. And in verse 8, that He died for our sins... And that he died with the wicked. You know, Jesus was crucified with two common criminals. I mean, here's God. He comes to the earth. What do we do? We kill him with criminals. In verse 9, he lived a sinless life. In verse 10, he was an offering for sin, which is screaming atonement all over it. That in verse 11, he would justify many, and justification is then seen. And that he was numbered with the transgressors in his death. And that he made intercession for sinners. Verse 12. Well, the accuracy of these prophecies are clear evidence of the supernatural revelation of God in the Bible. Would you agree? Now, you understand, this isn't something that is cloudy in history. In other words, the record of the Old Testament, okay, the canon of the Old Testament was was put together and was something that has been commonly embraced ever since its inception. You understand what I'm saying? We're not trying to look back and figure out what was written. We have all kinds of crystal clear understanding of what was in the original manuscripts in the Old Testament. Okay, well, how do we know that? Well, we have things like the Mishnah. We have things where the Jews are commenting on the Holy Scriptures for hundreds, even thousands of years. And, and, and they're commenting on the very Scriptures that we hold in our hands today, right? You might be familiar. In 272, I think, B.C., There, there's a, a book called the Septuagint. You know what that is? It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? And so we know exactly what the Old Testament said. Um, in the Septuagint uh, 272 B.C. So we know what the Old Testament character was. We know what the very words of it were way back when it was written. So here here we are 700 years before Christ comes and, and performs his passion. And here we have this description of atonement and substitution like nothing we've ever seen. And here God is prophesying through the mouth of Isaiah. My servant will come and he will do these things. He'll be despised, rejected, wounded, killed. And all of that will be for your blessing and your benefit. Isn't that amazing? God help us to treasure it. Amen? Next week we'll, we'll start into the idea of the deity of Christ. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these rich words that you have given us in the Old Testament. I pray, Father, that you would help us to rightly understand them. I pray that they would be strength and food for our faith and our souls. And, Lord, we just thank you for all that you are doing in the history of creation and in redemption. We ask, Lord, that you would make us the priests of that you've called us to be, that we would see ourselves as your very servants and that, Lord, we would take this gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of serving in your house. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and loving you and delighting in you. May you be our delight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.